Is that? There we go. Good morning. So I think at, to, to switch from, some, from something beautiful and poetic to something slightly ridiculous, perhaps, uh, we, we've all seen doomsday movies or TV series at some point, I'm sure. We know what that's about, right? The, the genre of, of action movie that are about more or less the end of the world. Now, it might be from, it, there's all sorts of things that bring about the end of the world in these, in these movies. Uh, it could be asteroids, Armageddon, uh, or aliens, like in Independence Day, or climate change, like in, in the day after tomorrow, or some kind of runaway seismic activity uh, in 2012. Now, the 2012 one was interesting. Because the movie 2012 was based on these speculations about the, the Mayan calendar cycle in which the cycles just ran out on the winter solstice of the year 2012, at which time it was hypothesized the Mayans predicted the end of the world. Of course, that date came and went, and no apocalyptic stuff happened, and the world didn't end. Or did it? There's a conspiracy theory out there that the world actually did end in 2012 when scientists at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, discovered the Higgs boson and that actually the world did end uh, because the discovery of that particle somehow created a black hole or like a rift in the space-time continuum and now we're living in a parallel universe because the one we were in before they destroyed. Um, if you have nothing better to do this afternoon, go consult the Google on this one and see if you can get to the bottom of the rabbit hole. I could not. It gets weirder and weirder. Okay. Now, all, all the ridiculous stuff aside, I, I think we know what it feels like to live in a world which could legitimately destroy itself. Since kind of the middle of the 20th century, we've lived under the threat of nuclear annihilation, and some of you might be familiar with uh, mutually assured destruction, right, where kind of the old Cold War term, where, uh, you know, when it was typically the United States and the Soviet Union both had enough nukes that they knew if either side used them, they'd destroy the world, so that kind of kept the whole using nukes thing in check. But even, even though that's over and there's been some, you know, uh, dearmament, there's still enough nuclear weapons out there to blow the world up several times over. Of course, from time to time, things have been close, and, and some of you who are a little further along in years than I am might remember you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis back in the 60s. And Of course, every time things heat up a bit in the Middle East, and we've just been through another one of those cycles, and maybe we're still there, everybody gets a little bit nervous about what's going to happen, because I think the, the general train of thought kind of runs like this, right? E with the United States and the Soviet Union, everybody was kind of playing by the same rules. But I think now we're a little more worried about, you know, terrorist organizations. That they, mutually assured destruction might not be as much of a deterrent to some of those type of organizations, given their willingness, for instance, to use suicide bombing tactics and stuff like that. And so we live in a world where there is a fair bit of fear about things like that. But what does the scripture tell us that we should do when we live in a world where we legitimately fear that the end of the world could happen? Well, actually, scripture says the end of the world is going to happen. It's, it's not something that might happen. It is going to happen at some point. The, the scriptures are pretty clear about that. But rather than panic, I'll give you a little hint. Our sermon series right now is called Love One Another. 
So that might be a little hint about what the scriptures say we should do in light of that. And we just, we just heard it read. I'm, I'm sure that wasn't lost on you, right? The end of all things is nigh, Peter says. So in light of that, don't panic. Love one another. He begins by reminding his readers in this passage that the, the end is near. Or to be a bit more literal, perhaps, the end of all things has drawn near. Might be a slightly more literal way to render that. Now, some of us at some point in our past were probably exposed to end-of-the-world prophecy speculations or even outright predictions that the world was going to end, you know, the Gulf War or the turn of the millennium or who knows what. That was kind of a thing for a while. Thankfully, it seems to have died down, at least kind of in mainstream evangelical circles. But even so, these sorts of crazy and, of course, always wrong predictions have given some people a kind of distaste for thoughts about the return of Jesus motivating the way that we should live now. And that's an understandable thing. However, we have to remember that the New Testament always assumes that this will happen. This world as we know it will come to an end. It's not a maybe, but it's always presented to us as a motivation for us to live for Jesus in whatever time we have now. What it doesn't tell about is, is specifics, predictions, when it will happen, what world events will trigger it, specific timetables and people and, and all of those things that speculators tend to speculate about. Now maybe it's because of this whole kind of doomsday uh, movie genre, but we tend to get focused on those specific things. What's it going to look like on the ground and, and will there be mass carnage and so forth? Now, to be fair, the Bible does speak of some things that do sound pretty scary and kind of like the stuff you see in, in disaster movies, terrible storms or earthquakes or tsunamis or whatnot. But there are two things that when we go too far down that road that we start to forget about. Two important things. The world, the end, its ultimate end, the end is already known. The end is that Jesus will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and defeat sin and death totally and completely. That's the ultimate end, the ultimate goal, the ultimate conclusion to which it's all going. Number two, the end, in light of Jesus' victory, means some sort of judgment. Right? Jesus will be the victor, and he will also be the judge, and everyone will have to give an account. We see this all the time in the New Testament. Jesus himself would tell parables about this, you know the sort of ones where he would say the king or the, the master of the house went away on this long journey and left some servants in charge and some of those servants did really well with what they'd been given and some of the servants did really badly. He tells various parables along with it. But it always ends the same, right? The master is eventually going to come back and call them to account and those that were, that were abusing the privileges that he had given them in the meantime are judged. Those that have been doing well with what he's given them in the meantime are rewarded. It seems to be what Peter is getting at here. Jesus is going to come back and wrap all of this up. We don't know when exactly, but in the meantime, things might get unpleasant, yeah, and they might even get worse and worse. But the real issue is not to set timetables and try to predict when certain things are going to happen. The real issue is how are we going to live in the midst of all this? Okay, so what's common 
if you flip on any trailer for any of those disaster movies, it doesn't matter which one it is, there's always this scene and it's always in the trailer. And it's a crowded city square like Times Square or something and something's collapsing and there's crowds of people just scattering in all directions in complete and total panic. Every single one. Every trailer has basically the same shot. There'll be a big bass drop and something will fall and everyone scatters. Usually the whole plot can be boiled down to basically most people are panicking and mayhem, but there's this small band of dedicated survivors that band together and act heroically and either overcome the disaster or find a way through it. Even though everyone else is just panic and sheeple mentality. And Peter's pretty clear. Don't be like those, those panicked masses of people that have no idea what's going on and just running every which way, nowhere in particular, in, in terror. When things do seem to be getting out of control, more and more violent, when people are calling good evil and they're calling evil good, what do we do? Don't panic, Peter says. Whatever you do, panicking is not going to help. Let us remember always that the end means the goal, the culmination or the consummation or the completion of everything that Jesus has been doing. The end means that Jesus will bring his final victory, however painful it might be in the coming. So the end is nigh is not primarily an occasion to fear. It's an occasion to hope. Instead of panicking, Peter says, be self-controlled, and sober-minded. With what result? Prayer. Now it's a little bit ambiguous uh, if you look at the Greek. We can interpret this as saying that prayer is the result of being self-controlled and of sober mind. Or we could also look at this as prayer is the cause of being sober-minded. It's a little bit unclear which one exactly is the cause and which one is the effect. But I think we all know from our experience, being sober-minded and being committed to prayer, that forms a, a virtuous cycle, right? At the end of the day, we know that they're mutually supportive. If, if you don't have something of a clear and, and sober mindset, your prayers aren't going to be much more than just kind of panicking in God's general direction and once in a while adding, you know, Lord God into your panic. You're not really and truly committing to prayer. But on the other hand, if you're not committed to prayer, all your sober-mindedness is going to kind of be just stoicism where you try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you end up becoming bitter, cold. What else seems to happen in these disaster movies? Well, I kind of already alluded to. Uh, You usually have a small band of survivors that band together, whereas everybody else, it's just mayhem and every man for himself, winner take all. If they're especially dark, even the band of survivors starts to turn that way and turns on one another. That's sort of a plot that's consistent across this whole genre. Now that might make for an interesting story or an interesting movie because it adds conflict and we all know that's what story plots are usually based on, but you know what? It's a terrible way to try to live together. It seems to be our natural tendency that we just look out for our own needs, but rather than that, over against what often comes naturally, Peter encourages God's people to stick together and love one another deeply. 
He does this in a number of ways. So he has a few points about love that are worth looking at. First of all, uh, the primacy of love. He says, above all, that we should love one another. This could go in a couple of different ways. We could see love and hospitality and service and, and all the other types of gifts all as sort of, you know, a, a pick and choose kind of a menu. Or we could see them, I guess, as like meals in the day. All discrete kind of things of which love is just kind of the most important among equals. Kind of like how people say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. We could say that, well, love is the most important of all these, above all. But rather than that, I think what Peter is saying that it's not that love is just sort of the first among equal. When he says, above all, love one another, he, he's saying that because if you don't love one another, all these other things flow out from that. So if you get the love one another wrong, you're not going to get hospitality right. You're not going to get using your gifts of speech and service right. Love one another is the thing you have to get right for all of these others to flow from. Above all, love one another. And in this passage and in chapter 1, Peter insists that believers must love one another, and your translations will say different things, earnestly or deeply or fervently. And in chapter 1, he adds, from the heart. This certainly does speak to a quality of the intensity of love. But it doesn't speak solely of an intensity based on emotion, as, as our culture seems to think of it, when we hear the word heart, especially. I think I mentioned last week that it's quite possible to have a lot of intensity in, in your love or in your cause without really that much being accomplished. The depth or intensity of love in God's view of things isn't to be measured by how emotional it is. That could just be like the foam on top of it. In God's view of things, the intensity of love is measured by how sacrificial it is. Third thing, the constancy of love. There's a sense here in which Peter is encouraging God's people to ongoing faithfulness in their love for one another. Some translations you might have will say something like, keep on loving one another earnestly. Or, uh, keep your love for one another earnest. I mentioned last week, if you were here, about our tendency to respond well and respond truly and rightly in love in crisis situations. And at the same time, to struggle in loving one another well in the day-to-day -day matters. Peter reminds us here that faithfulness in the, in the ongoing day-by-day -day walk of faith matters. We do well to take some steps or build ourselves some structures to remind us to do these and make sure we're doing these things. Now, some people I know, as soon as you hear love one another and you hear like something along the lines of structure or disciplines, you chafe a little against that because it's like, well, but, but love needs to be spontaneous and so forth. Again, I think we're being conditioned by our culture to think that way more so than by Scripture. According to Scripture, love isn't about our changing notions of emotional authenticity. It's about sacrificing your own agenda to build up the body. Love, like any other virtue that we're called to do, will require discipline. 
And discipline certainly is helped along by putting, putting some sorts of structures and, and concrete reminders to ourselves in place. Number four, love covers a multitude of sins. What, what does that little add-on mean there? Well, I don't think it means that if we love one another, just stuff gets swept under the carpet and we can just ignore it and pretend it never happened, right? That's, that's not what it's getting at here. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Not everything that we dislike about our brothers and sisters in the family of faith, not everything that irritates us or annoys us about our brothers and sisters is because they're actually sinning against us. It might just be that someone has an annoying voice, or they sing off-key, or they're always forgetful, or they tend to run late, or they think differently than you do theologically about some disputable matter. And you might not like that, but that doesn't mean that they've sinned against you in some way. So we do need to be aware of that. Even if someone has wronged you in some way, that doesn't necessarily mean as well that they did it intentionally or maliciously to hurt you. We're all human and we fail in ways that we don't even realize we're doing sometimes. Not to say that it isn't wrong or that it doesn't hurt, but it may not have been done intentionally. And yes, sadly, sometimes people do things intentionally to hurt one another because we're all broken and, and sinful humans even though Jesus has saved us. However, if we love one another well, we're going to give one another grace and we're not going to automatically rush to option number three, that someone has sinned against us intentionally for the purpose of hurting us. We might back off on that and say, maybe they did it unintentionally. We might even back off to saying, maybe they didn't even sin against us. Maybe it's just something that's annoying and relatively harmless and maybe I need to get over myself. Another thing to note about this, this line about love covering a multitude of sins, it's, it's more or less a quote from the book of Proverbs, uh, 10, 12, and 17, 9. Both of those passages talk about covering a sin or an offense, and they're not necessarily talking about it in the sense of, of forgiveness or atonement language. Covering in those passages has more of the sense of, of keeping the thing private, between yourself and the person concerned, rather than stirring up strife. That seems to be the contrast that's being drawn there. So if your brother offends you, your first course of action should not be to go gossip about it with a whole bunch of other people and stir up strife and cause trouble. Maybe you should pray about it and discern whether any sin has actually been committed, and then if it has, you should deal with it with the person that had a part to play in it and yourself not go talk about it with everyone else. If we love one another well, as Jesus would have us to love one another, then our main concern when we're offended, when we've been wronged, and we may come to the conclusion that yes, we have been, but even then, our concern is, is going to be for the, the sake of the relationship and the sake of the larger body and for restoring a damaged or broken aspect of our fellowship one with another, not with just trying to prove ourselves right or get back at the other person. Peter then moves on from a discussion of love to some specific instances of love in action. And the first one he talks about is showing hospitality. 
whole books have been and continue to be written on the topic of hospitality, so I'm not going to exhaust what it means to show hospitality in one sermon subpoint. Like many things, it's going to look different in our culture than it probably looked in, in the first century when Peter wrote this. At that time, public places to stay uh, could be non-existent or, or certainly not good places for Christians to go frequenting. Uh, for instance, it was very common and almost the norm, the rule, that inns would also be brothels. And so Christians were like, no, we, we shouldn't stay at those places. And so Christians who were traveling for missionary service or just business or whatever they were doing, they were dependent on the kindness and goodness of other brothers and sisters in the faith to give them a place to stay and to feed them while they were on their travels. Now, obviously, our world is different now. All the same, we still have a lot to gain by opening our homes to one another. And yes, that's probably going to require some vulnerability and yes, I think there's a way in which things like, say, the Food Network have probably ironically actually made this worse instead of better because there are ways in which that can turn what should be fellowship and hospitality into a production and uh, encourage an unhealthy sort of form of perfectionism that everything has to be just right and meals become you know, status markers rather than faith markers where you have to get it right rather than just focus on getting together. This is one area where I know our, our church board has identified the need for more and better, stronger connection within our church family in the season ahead. And I know this is something we're working on, even something as simple as what we were doing today with, with contact cards and an opportunity to say what you're involved in or those things what you're interested in being involved in. This is sort of a first step in that direction. Uh, to know better what needs are even out there and how we can help people and encourage that. But it's not just something that we can magically create either. This is going to mean all of us working together, making time, making space for one another. So hospitality, uh, a specific instance of how we can use our gifts. But then he goes on because there's other, there's other gifts that the Lord gives to his people. And he says, whatever gift you've given... You should use it to love one another and to build up the body. He mentions two main categories, speaking gifts, serving gifts. However, before we go there, let's just look briefly at the how. Peter says we should use our gifts as good stewards of God's grace. Again, like I said with hospitality, stewardship is another topic that you could write whole books and do whole ser sermon series on. But it boils down to this. Stewardship means you've been given something that you don't actually own, that you are supposed to use, not primarily for your own good, but for the good of one another, right? Because we have spiritual gifts, but we also have other things that, that we're given that, that are just the, the context in which we use our spiritual gifts, our time, our other resources, our homes, many things that we can use that... that our spiritual gifts are used in the context of these things. Some things God gives us are supernatural. Some are just the day-to-day -day experience that we live in. And we need to be good stewards of both of these, and especially because of the way they interact. So, love one another, using your spiritual gifts as good stewards in the context of things like your time, your, your resources, 
especially since we're reminded at the start that not only is the time limited, but the time also may be short. So use these gifts to serve one another in speaking, in preaching, in teaching, in encouraging one another. They're all opportunities to love one another. For those of us who have gifts in these speaking gift areas, this should be a powerful reminder that we're to exercise these gifts and fulfill these roles as an expression of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not solely for the purpose of just drawing attention to ourselves. Peter's reminder here is that those with speaking gifts are speaking God's words to God's people to love them, not speaking their words to their people to impress them. So love in word, love in deed too, the service gifts, hospitality, meeting practical needs, generosity, they're equally important in God's family and ways we can love one another. Here too, though, we're reminded that doing so means doing God's work. To do it, Peter says, in the strength that God supplies and not our own. In our efficiency and production-obsessed culture, we think, I think we tend to think that doing it in God's strength means that we'll be able to do so much more. It might actually be the case that doing something in God's strength means we're going to do less, but we're going to do it better. Peter's reminder here is that those with serving gifts are caring for God's people with God's strength to love them, not caring for our people with our strength to impress them. And finally, do these things. Use your gifts sacrificially to serve others with the result that God is glorified. The result of loving our brothers and sisters in the faith in the way God has for us is that the Lord receives the glory. Because here's the thing, if we're actually doing this, if we're actually loving one another in this way as God intends, people are going to notice. People inside the church, people outside the church, people will see this. They'll notice this isn't the way people normally live. This goes against our natural way of doing things. They'll notice that there's a a kind of deeper and richer and more joyful life present among God's people than they're seeing anywhere else. And while that's not the only kind of a testimony that we're called to make to the Lord's goodness in our lives, it is a powerful one. And I fear maybe a neglected one. I'm going to conclude with a practical opportunity that we will actually have to put some of this into practice. I don't want to have this overshadow the need to meet together in homes and around tables but we, we've heard it mentioned in our in our prayer time and you can't help but notice it as what's it say out there my quake life 2020 I, they're, they're not quite done uh, out there with the youth quake decorating but it, it's one of the most incredible opportunities for people to use their gifts for the good of the body and the kingdom and of course God calls some people in a thing like this, to very specific instances of using their gifts. Speaking and and leading and administrating and so forth. However, I believe he's calling us in this season, all of us, to be hospitable. Whether we have students and leaders sleeping on our floor or in our spare bedroom or not, we're all called to be hospitable. We have the opportunity to make this campus and the surrounding community 
a welcoming and joyful and hospitable place for people to be. As I said, we, we might not be doing that directly by having people in our homes. There's an important phrase there in, in Peter's discussion of showing hospitality. I think you probably caught it. Without grumbling, right? These sorts of opportunities present us, we can do it joyfully, or we can do it reluctantly and, and grumbly. Each of us has a part to play in, in how this community will be perceived. So I would encourage all of us, as we have the opportunity, big or small, this is just a few short weeks away now, but to be so welcoming and so hospitable and so using whatever gift you have for the good of the body and for the Lord's glory that people think this place is super weird in a good way. I would like to, to conclude, uh, we'll have a video in just a moment, and I'd also like to call up a friend of mine who, who maybe, Joe, is kind of weird in a, in a good way. Um, Joe Duick. Joe will be familiar to many of you, uh, and he has an opportunity for you in regards to YQ. But uh, we're going to show a video now, and then Joe's going to give us a little context about the Voltage New... How that connects with Youthquake.